0: Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. So we're talking about what today and why is it our first movie of uh,
1: 2021?
0: 22. That's the one. Let's keep that in.
1: (laughs) Whatever fucking year this is, we're doing John Carpenter's The Thing, which is a movie about frigid temperatures and snow and paranoia and trying to stop a contagion from taking over the entire world. It's very relevant. And it's also one of the great horror movies of the late 20th century. It's John Carpenter at his best. I feel like I'm saying this over and over. I think we're doing a lot of movies these days that are like a director producing a masterpiece. And this is one of them.
0: So we have coming up in the show... To Die For, which I think we mm-hmm. agree is a Gus Van Sant masterpiece. And then Goodfellas, where mm-hmm. you know Martin Scorsese probably arguably had a handful of masterpieces before Goodfellas, but I can think of no more of a Corsese masterpiece than Goodfellas itself
1: that that one's like a master masterpiece that's where like we become whatever the thing above that is yeah and we also talked about Titanic as our last movie of 2021
0: another masterpiece another chilly chilly tale
1: yeah you know that I love the seasonal picks and so you're indulging me in having some movies that are very cold this is a cold movie and we were talking about it with Brad Bannon who we last saw for a very hot movie
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the dichotomy here is we had him for our hottest movie and we have him for our coldest movie.
1: Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) This is a good party question. Would you rather be at the outpost in The Thing or on the Titanic?
0: Yeah, don't do too many indoor things, but if you do, bring this one up and people will be like, there's an intellectual.
1: (laughs) There's someone who wants to talk about something scary that isn't the scary thing happening right now. Yes. So that's nice. (laughs)
0: What's the selling point of this movie? Why, why would people want to check this out?
1: Hmm. So first of all, this is a Kurt Russell movie, and those are always fun. Kurt Russell is always fun, even in this <laughs> very intense movie. I mean, I feel like this is a New Year movie that kind of bookends the New Year along with Titanic because we just kind of said goodbye to 2021. And now we're saying hello to the horrible situation we remain in with the thing. All right. I don't think that's very enticing, though. I mean, (laughs) I'm going to do a hard sell in one minute. Okay, this is a really beautiful movie. It has a gorgeous, moody soundtrack by Ennio Morricone. It's got a bunch of great performances. The practical effects are gorgeous. They're very gross. It is a beautiful movie and a gross movie. It's about, as we talk about in this episode, the way people behave in a certain death situation and what it means when we try to do the right thing when we know we're not making it out of this one alive it's also kind of a alien western which i think is a great flavor of movie and uh superstition by stevie wonder that part's great too <laughs> almost out of time uh norwegian guy can't shoot what's that about
0: okay we often talk like in these episodes about like feelings the movie evokes Mm -hmm. and usually those feelings take place in a world in which we still have some agency and control over the outcome of our situation Mm -hmm. and this is a movie about one of those times that we don't like to think about Mm -hmm. which is when we don't have any agency or control over the outcome of our situation and we need to Mm -hmm. kind of reconcile and live with that Yeah. So it's going to be a jolly chat.
1: It'll be so fun. You'll have so much fun. I mean, here's the thing. I think that when you were experiencing a thing like situation, sometimes it's nice to watch people acting out a faster moving, grosser, grislier version of the metaphorical situation you're in, which is honestly, I think a a lot of why we like horror movies as a society, because the Amityville horror, which I've been talking about lately on You're Wrong About, is about how scary it is to be trying to have an american nuclear family and afford a house (laughs) and it's just like taking that and putting some goo on it (laughs) you just put a little goo on
0: it (laughs) any remaining thoughts before we uh we get into john carpenter's thing
1: how are you doing alex how's your new year's going so far
0: I don't know. I, I was just talking with a friend. I mean, I, it's fine. I'm happy to have a snow day here with uh, my beloved and hang out and do that sort of thing. But like I was just talking with a friend of mine who who uh, name is named Samuel James. And if you're looking for interesting and good writing on race, I hope you'll check out Sam's mm. work. He's the best. Mm-hmm. I've known him since we were mall kids. <laughs> now he's a moth featured storyteller. He's just a fabulous Fantastic person. But we were just talking about how what seems to define this moment in particular, usually X amount of things in our experience are chaotic. Mm -hmm. 30% of the world is chaotic. 70% is more or less how it is. And you can judge Mm -hmm. the shape and the intensity of the chaos by juxtaposing the 30% to the 70%. Totally. Right now, it feels like everything is the 30%. And so it's hard to know the shape of it, the potential outcome of it, where we're going, what's happening. And usually people enter a new year and go, it's long December, maybe this year will be better than the last, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't feel that way. So I'm trying to process that. (laughs) I think the thing is a perfect movie for not feeling that way
1: yeah right it's just if you want to take a break from being hopeful and trying then like this is a good movie for that I think <laughs>
0: next week we'll have to die for
1: What about a woman who tries very very hard some might say too hard hashtag girl boss.
0: <laughs> all right well it's been a long December let's hope for the
1: best all right happy January everybody <laughs> Don't get
0: singed. Hello everybody. Just a couple of quick things before we begin. First, you are good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us at Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. We appreciate what you do. We appreciate that you help us make this whole thing possible. Just last week, we released Carolyn's rendition of I'll Be Here in the Morning for our Patreon subscribers. So thanks so much uh, to you. That's the sort of thing you can find there. We also have bonus episodes. We have one coming out so, so soon. I know I've talked a lot about this, but the holidays really got the best of us. (laughs) So you'll have a bonus episode in just mere moments. And it's made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. It's a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee. Though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done get in touch with the folks at knack factory as always we have a playlist to accompany this episode uh, that you can find in the show notes check it out you uh, will notice that we have a new logo which i talked about i think in last week's variety show episode but we have a new logo thanks so much to liz clemo and lucky you you can get some new you are good swag very limited as we do with these short runs so look for that in the show notes as well look for a link t-shirt sweatshirts etc of The new You Are Good logo. I think that's it. Let's get into this very chilly conversation about The Thing. I hope that you all enjoy. Brad, last time we talked was August, I recall, because it was uh, was Texas Chainsaw Massacre time. Yes. We love covering movies that feel seasonally appropriate. That's a thing that Sarah has shepherded us into. This movie that we're covering is on the opposite end of the seasonal spectrum. What are we doing?
2: We're doing the John Carpenter's The Thing. Which is my favorite movie of all time.
1: Yay! Brad, I wonder if if you feel about the thing the way I feel about Titanic. That's a movie that I fell in love with at a young age and is also about the question of how would you behave if death was basically guaranteed and what does that say about you? Mm -hmm.
2: There's absolutely no question that this was the first movie that introduced me to the concept of people knowing they were going to die, accepting their fate but also working really hard to stop that fate from befalling others.
1: Mm.
0: They were super cool about it.
2: I mean, Kurt Russell was (laughs) Kurt (laughs) Kurt Russell never (laughs) lost his (laughs) coolness throughout this movie. I think that pretty much everyone else did except for maybe Knowles. Knowles seemed pretty cool until the end.
1: Knowles was pretty cool. Knowles has a good attitude. What's Keith David's character's name? Childs. Right. I feel like I'm on
0: the child spectrum. (laughs)
1: How so? Like moderately cool, <laughs> but would also be like, uh, "I'm the, you're not going to tie me up, sorry." And I'm on the Palmer Windows spectrum, which is like, "Don't bother me, I'm getting high." <laughs> <laughs>
2: Of the 58 hours of uh, bonus footage and extra materials and documentaries that I've watched on the thing, I've never heard why Windows constantly has sunglasses on at
0: night, inside, <laughs> outside, everywhere.
1: I think he has pink eye. <laughs>
0: I don't know the official answer, but I do know that he's one of those actors that has his own studio and like teaches his method and stuff. Oh, I assume that this was very much a choice. You're
1: very much the Charlie of this group. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sarah, before we dive in too far into the ice hole, what's the thing about
1: Alex? I wanted to start by asking you, I just thought this would be fun for everybody to try and name <laughs> the characters in the thing. <laughs> I think
0: I think Kurt Russell's character's name is Macready.
1: yes ding one and
0: I, I only know that because we had to see it on his jacket at some point and like that and I'm re- realizing what I relate to in a big way which is I need something visual so Macready. Hmm. we have child who we just talked about we have windows
1: guy with the sunglasses who works the radio and
0: there's a guy who might have a German or French name Jacques maybe I don't know there's no Jacques <laughs> okay cool Great news.
1: This is comedy gold. There's
0: Wilford Brimley. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) There's the guy who has the wildest eyebrows and slips into an English accent sometimes. (laughs) Gary. There's the stoner who we just referred to. Palmer. Palmer. And then there's the dog loving man who I appreciate.
1: Clark. He's got a University of Oregon shirt and he loves dogs. So as you imagine, I'm a big fan of Clark. <laughs> and then there's other people. And then there's other people. Yeah. Famously. Then I think they're the Swedes, right? Norwegians, McCreedy.
0: They're Norwegians. They're Norwegians. There's the Ouija's. Then there are a number of dogs and the thing.
2: Yeah, there's a dozen dudes, there's a bottle of J&B that gets a lot of use, and yeah, like a handful of dogs.
1: I don't think you mentioned Norris. No. I would say our most spectacular thing victim is our <laughs> yes. mild-mannered geologist.
2: Who Nor- Norris has one of the greatest moments in the movie where they try to put him in charge and he's like, "No, nah, no, nah, nah, I don't think I'm up for it." I love that. <laughs>
1: That's why I don't suspect him of being a thing because like you got the subconscious bias that the like nice guys or the beta males aren't going to be things but they are. It's interesting.
0: More people today should learn from his example which is just like you're given an opportunity to lead and if you don't feel up to it. No, nah, they're just that's not for me right now. Yeah. no, is this deliberately a 12 Angry Men riff? Is this specifically an homage to it, or is that not a, it, intentional?
2: I don't think so because in the original short story, there were 37 people. <gasps> oh, okay, it may have been adopted. Is that and I know Carpenter has said before that this has Agatha Christie and then there were none vibes to it. Mm. I think the real reason that he reduced it to 12 people is it was hard enough already to put 12 people in a shot and
0: follow
1: them around.
0: I was just trying to remember 12 of them. So, yeah, I agree.
1: This is like our version of the Jingle All the Way Reindeer Challenge. (laughs) But I'll tell you what this movie is about. We open with an adorable husky running across the snow. This feels auspicious. Surely nothing could go wrong from here. And then a guy is chasing it in a helicopter and shooting at it. And the husky arrives at this American research outpost, outpost 31. He's the worst shot in all of Norwegia. He is. <laughs> this is a country that excels at biathlon. Where was
0: he? He fired at least 19 rounds and did not He really did. Yeah. And
1: that is one magic fucking dog, I guess. People on IMDb have speculated this movie has a great trivia page that, like, while the dog is unobserved, it can repel bullets because um, it's actually the thing is, is the thing of it. (laughs) And so the dog arrives at the American outpost promptly licks everyone as much as possible. The Norwegians come and are shooting at it. Oh, Bennings, we forgot to name Bennings. they, what happens? And Norwegian is, like, attacking them. And does McCready Or, no, Gary accidentally hits Bennings by firing at the Norwegians from inside and breaking a window? Is that what happens? No, I
2: think that the Norwegian hits Bennings when he's firing at the dog. And then Gary very squarely hits the Norwegian. Of course. Shoots him in the eye. Pretty good shot.
1: Yeah. Gary seems to be ex-military and so... Or current military. And so they kill the Norwegians who are attacking them and not getting their point across because they're speaking Norwegian, which right there, I feel like they would probably be able to speak English if they're scientists working at the South Pole, (laughs) because Norwegians are pretty, you know, good at speaking languages, it seems, whatever. Um, And so everyone is like, well, that was weird. I guess they got cabin fever. And then they're like, how do they get cabin fever in A few weeks. I don't... That seems odd. Yeah, this is like a spiritual sequel to The Shining. That's
0: true. Obviously, he had cabin fever. That's the obvious and only answer about what happened. Let's go investigate.
1: That's what we blame whenever anything bad happens in the snow. It's convenient. (laughs) And they're like, hey, McCready. And McCready's like, I'm Kurt Russell.
2: (laughs) And I'm super handsome.
1: (laughs) He's so beautiful. He's got, like, the most beautiful face. And, like, I love how... He's like this sad Vietnam vet who's traumatized and has given up on life, but he still has the most beautiful silky hair. Mm-hmm. But they're like, hey, McCready, can we go to the Norwegian base to try and figure out what the fuck happened? Or, you know, tell them, presumably, because we assume there are people still alive there. And McCready's like, sure, I don't care if I live or die. There's like weather coming, but he's like, whatever. And so they go out to the Norwegian base and they find that a lot of scary stuff has happened and everyone is dead and then they find this like alien in a chunk of ice and some tapes of an excavation and they're like cool clues <laughs> and then they take those back and they keep the alien out at room temperature and do an autopsy because that's what you do
0: my favorite thing about those clues is like when they're watching it they're like how much longer do we have and they're like 19 hours of footage and they're like we'll <laughs> never find out what happens." <laughs> it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah you need to watch it dipshit
1: <laughs> aren't you guys scientists some of you and also it's like this team is half scientists and half like blue collar guys who have to take care of the scientists which is fun which is a, an echo of alien for sure so yeah what, what's on the tapes alex
0: it looks like the scientists had had found a spaceship That they dug, that they dug out. It's under the ice. And then uh, someone from our team back home deduced that based on where it was in the ice, it was like 100,000 years
1: old. Yeah. And it's a giant friggin' spaceship. And Brad, how do you feel about the fact that the spaceship just totally looks like a matte painting if you're watching this on, you know, in Yeah,
2: Well, that might be the one part where they could have used a special effect uh, that they didn't have. um, (laughs) Because that, I mean, truly, that really stands out from the rest of the movie is a very obviously fake situation. Yeah. We gave them that they had to have their giant flying saucer moment.
0: (laughs) It's okay because on the movie description that showed on my screen, it said it's presented by horror meister John Carpenter. So if it's presented by the horror meister, it's totally fine.
1: Right. You can say that it's an homage to the Howard Hawks movie and it would be like, oh, okay. Newsies also has a couple of matte painting scenes, which I think is so charming for a movie that came out in 1992. (laughs) Brad, correct
0: me if I'm wrong, but isn't Jamie Lee Curtis and children... Watching the old version of the thing on TV when Halloween happens,
2: yeah. Yes, the Howard Hawks version of the thing, which was Carpenter's one of his favorite movies. And I think he said, you know, one of the first scary movies he saw as a kid and really, really did scare him. So he put, you know, they had to be watching scary movies on Halloween night and he put the thing on. The thing from another world is what it's called.
1: Hmm.
0: Let's, yeah, let's call it homage, Sarah. I think you're right. Oh, yeah,
1: homage from I. Yes. So it, this map painting demonstrates to us that like this is a gigantic freaking spaceship. And so they all go back to the outpost and watch the videos and let the alien defrost like chicken. <laughs> it's, it turns out to be, I think, a person who has been killed or burned to death when they are midway through being assimilated by the thing. Brad, is that correct? Yeah,
2: yeah. I think so. I mean, they, just, they bring some remains back from the camp. As to why they bring those remains back from the camp. I mean, it's just obviously so Mm -hmm. that we can showcase the face separating from itself, which is in that Mm -hmm. sculpture that was done. That's the one they bring back. And I think that's the one that they I guess that Blair gets to do the first bunch of exposition on.
1: Yeah, which is an amazing scene because it's like the thing autopsy. And I just can't get over the fact that they just like have it out sort of gradually defrosting as if they're like, oh, let's have thing tonight. Can you grab the thing out of the freezer and put it in the sink, honey? Clearly
0: they hadn't seen the
1: thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they're not familiar with the thing yet, obviously. (laughs)
1: Yeah, with, with thing safety procedures. But yeah, so they sort of dissect this ooey gooey Weird entity that they don't know what it is. And Blair, played by Wilford Brimley, makes sure to like touch his lip with his instrument at least once, which is great. Then after that, Bennings, who's the guy who got shot originally, who has the iconic line, Nulls, would you turn that crap down? I'm trying to get some sleep. I was shot today. (laughs) Is alone in a room with the thing, which is now like fully defrosted and ready to mingle. And so we see Benning's getting assimilated, which is like the thing rips your clothes off and then embraces you with its tentacles, basically.
0: I still don't fully understand what happens. Like it embraces you with its tentacles. It like sucks you in. And does it like sort of copy you? And then uh, you like a version of it that is actually looks like you split out of that. And then is it all the same mass?
1: I think it just like eats you and then it, can imitate you
0: then also is it everything it's ever touched like can it access all those things like is it is the form that we see it in like some sort of process or is it assuming some other like what is that brad what is happening
2: (laughs) well i mean there's what there's what it was in the original short story which is quite good notwithstanding some problems with the writer and then there's sort of what Carpenter meant to do and Rob Bottin, who who was the special effects person who created the thing, um, what they meant to do with it. And I think that Carpenter sort of credits Bottin with the, you know, with the main idea that this thing is everything that it's ever come into contact with across mm. the universe mm. and that it can take those forms, which is why whenever you see it you know, coming out and defending itself throughout the course of the movie, you see different things. You know, you see a human head, you see a dog head, you see, you know, tentacles, you see other things that obviously it has not come into contact with when it's been in Antarctica. Mm. And so, you know, the concept here is this is an organism that every single part of is a whole, and so it can become whatever it comes into contact with, but it can also that doesn't consume itself. And that's why, you know, there's the computer graphic later on where Blair is playing this out with his little computer program that says, you know, we're it's basically the amount of time it will take to infect the entire human population if it gets out. Uh, from here,
0: it's the same computer program I think that Jeff Goldblum uses in The Fly to explain no. that he's now he's now part fly.
1: It's the Expositron. <laughs> the expositron. Yes.
0: <laughs> the expositron eighty two. Yeah.
1: And also on the IMDb page, there's an item that's like Blair's computer game is unrealistic for these reasons, like the little animation. And it's like, okay, do you understand that this is a movie and not like a thing that happened? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. So back to the plot. So, yes, the thing assimilates Bennings. It's gross. And then we come upon Bennings in the snow, who's got like weird, like salad fingers hands. And he looks up and he's like basically a fully cooked Bennings. He's like 90% there. He like looks up and makes this very haunting noise, this kind of like metallic roar, I would say. Mm. And then they torch him. And then they're like, what the fuck was that about?
2: By this time, it's also happened to the dogs.
1: Oh, my God. Yes. Okay, Brad, I feel like maybe you should take over because you've seen this movie. No, this is not Brad's explaining
2: time. This is this is this is Sarah and Alex's (laughs) podcast.
1: So this this cute husky has been wandering around camp all day. And Clark, whose entire job is to take care of The sled dogs that this outpost has which I think is cool and I think it would be nice if we could have like at least a a side conversation for a minute of like if only we that hadn't happened to the dogs then we could escape by dog sled (laughs) (laughs) Clark is like come on little buddy go to the kennel and be with your new dog friends and so he brings the dog in to the kennel and then we see all the other dogs like hmm They all can tell and they're all freaked out. And then the thing dog who's played by Jed, one of the great dog actors of the 20th century, who is also in White Fang and The Journey of Natty Gan.
0: Jed really acted his balls off in this movie. He sure did.
1: We got to watch Jed walk menacingly down a hallway and into the room of his first victim, which is like, if you can be a husky of any kind and look menacing, then like that's acting. (laughs) (laughs) rest in power jed um (laughs) exactly and so jed's face opens up into like what looks like i think was called the flesh flower Mm -hmm. by the special effects artist sounds like a
0: sexy euphemism
1: it does but it's like a giant like actual flower of flesh covered in dog teeth I believe and he's got like tubes whipping out what I
0: love about that when that happens is so like the flesh flower the nose splits and then opens and sort of all the flesh on the dog's face opens up like this and turns into like the the demon from the first season of uh, uh, Stranger Things it's mm. kind of like open like this and gross and then what's left of the head just like shoots out which yeah. is like such an incredible it's like already it's horrifying and you're like how could this get more horrifying
1: and then it's like here, motherfucker. So one of the apparently reasons that John Carpenter made the thing the way he did was because he saw Alien. And he was like, that was great. But like the alien was clearly a tall guy in a costume.
0: Oh, wow, and yeah.
1: except when it's a baby, of course, which is its most iconic manifestation <laughs> when it comes out of your chest. And John Carpenter is like, you know what, bitches, I'm going to make a movie where you go into a guy's chest among other things, and it's lit. Yes, it's like under the harsh fluorescent lighting of an American government building,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like when you have to go like talk to the actual IRS person,
1: right? And this movie, I think, got mostly terrible reviews when it came out. And Brad, maybe you can speak to this, but like, I feel like people were like, "These effects." are so gross. Why would you even do this? I hate it. (laughs) And I, my feeling about the effects and the feeling of the people who made this movie, like one of the most beloved horror films of all time, haha, is that like, oh my God, the effects are incredible. They're so amazing. You're like, oh my God, that dog just opened its face up and sent out another tiny gross face. And now it's going to assimilate. It's like, oh, I'm watching an alien with my very eyes. I'm like, it's a response to Alien in the sense that Alien really does amazing work by mostly not showing it. I think the only moment that has really ceased to work from my perspective is when Tom Scarrett is in the vents and he's hunting for the alien with his flamethrower and then they realize it's right on top of him. Where mm. is it? And he like turns around and the alien is right there and it reaches out its arms and it's like... <laughs> <laughs> It's like jazz hands the it's like jazz hands. yes it is like jazz hands and you're like well. it's me the hunted <laughs> <laughs> surprise you got me <laughs> you know
2: oh boy here i am
1: <laughs> <laughs> got a dance yeah it's great and so this movie i feel like is like you know what fuck that we're mm-hmm. gonna show you everything And you're going to see it's just not going to be cheated. We're just going to show you all this gross stuff. And this movie is very gross. And I love a gross horror movie. It's
0: funny that it was treated that way when it came out, because like when the pre when the prequel came out i guess you'd call that when the prequel mm-hmm. that was like about the about the previous team the primary concern outside of it not being directed by john carpenter was or the, the like piece of feedback was mm-hmm. like a lot of this will make you nostalgic for the practical effects of the first right go and i haven't seen the new movie but i i did notice that that was like a lot of the criticism
1: the new movie from 10 years ago. I mean, I th- I also think of it as the new movie, but yeah.
0: Gun to my head. When did that movie come out? I'd be like, 2018. Yep. <laughs> no, it came out one decade ago.
1: <laughs> just one, just a decade, whatever. <laughs> they just fly by, right? Jesus Christ. I also think that the thing, I think it initially didn't do as well as it deserved because it's not an incredibly user-friendly movie. Like, I feel like you can watch it for the first time, especially if you're, young and potentially leave with a sense of like, I have no idea what happened back there or what the ending was supposed to mean. And I want my money back. (laughs) Like, I think a lot of people probably (laughs) responded that way. I always felt about it, even when I found it like a little bit inscrutable story wise, I was like, well, I just love watching all those special effects. I'm very happy. Like in Bravo's hundred scariest movie moments, they have guillermo del toro talking about the thing because he loved the thing when it came out and he was like i never understood why it didn't do well in the u.s it did amazing in mexico i remember seeing it in the theater just like crammed with happy mexicans is how he described it which is like it's it's his quality film
0: (laughs) by way of like what it is which is like we're trapped and we're gonna die
1: Right. That's not really an American idea, is it? <laughs> right. In 1982
0: America. But like it, it is the most honest movie. It's the most ho- honest horror movie I've ever seen about our fate. Not just like individual, but like especially like our national fate.
1: <laughs> right. And it goes where Alien won't because Alien is like we're trapped and we're going to die. Except for like the hot, smart, extremely competent woman who's been kind of stepping up. Better than anybody else the entire time, right. which is very comforting because obviously you're going to identify with the protagonist, except those idiots who started off identifying with Tom Scarrett And then we're like, me, no, expect a woman to survive. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so in the thing, Blair does a thing autopsy. We have the dog Jed, the dog going and thingifying the other dogs. And so McCready has to run in and kill all of the dogs, which is really brutal. Like, this movie starts off, it's worth mentioning that, like, we start off watching someone chasing and trying to shoot a dog, which, if you don't know what's going on, is pretty intense. <laughs> and then it's intense for other reasons when you do know what's going on. And then we get to, like, dog violence immediately. So this movie is announcing itself as taking no prisoners. This is like stabbing mm. Janet Lee in the shower, basically. It's like, oh my God, they got Jed. Yeah,
0: dogs are first. Yeah. That's bold. And it's not just like in a slasher movie. Like often in a slasher movie, a dog dies or is like it's it's an off-screen death. Like that happens in Halloween, right? Like right. a dog is killed in the house. But like this movie's like, no, we're gonna we're gonna acquaint you with the doctor
1: <laughs> and we're gonna show them like freaking out and panicking. And honestly, I think one of the scariest effects in this movie is that it shows one of the dogs actually like biting through a chain link fence on its enclosure because it's trying so hard to escape and you just think about like the force that's necessary to do that even if this is like shoddy construction it's intense and so you're like all right, we're just this movie this thing does not give a shit and so they torch the jed thing they have to euthanize all the dogs that survived the event. And then they're like, well, something weird's going on. And then they're like, well, let's leave this defrosted alien guy. Let's just let's cover it with a tarp. That's what we'll do. We'll put a tarp on it. And then it assimilates Bennings and they're like, what the fuck? And this movie starts off very slow. Like, I feel like that doesn't happen until what, half an hour, 40 minutes in something like that. Mm hmm. It's like how the Titanic hits the iceberg at exactly the halfway mark of the movie or the mummy shows up exactly halfway through the mummy.
0: Honestly, uh, we see Michael a little bit in Halloween, but like we don't get into Halloween until we've spent an hour with teenage girls.
1: That's so true. Yeah. Teenage girls just like bullying each other.
0: Yeah. He does a great job of being like, this is who you're going to be upset about.
1: Right. And also like hell is other people because it's about (laughs) a group that are like fighting Okay. So after Bennings, I'm honestly having a hard time remembering the exact sequence of events. So I'm going to do phone a breath. Oh my
2: God, your phone phoning. This is the greatest moment of my life. I'm being called off the bench <laughs> to talk about the thing. It's incredible. <laughs> the Bennings death, I think, is where, where the focus starts to be on each other, hmm. which for me is the best part about the thing. I do like the special effects. I do like what they did with it. They're unflinching with them. But I think that for me, what has made this movie last and stand the test of time is that it is about how people begin to react to each other when they're afraid Mm -hmm. and they don't know who they're dealing with. And I think that once once you have the Norwegian autopsy and then the dog autopsy and then what happens with Benning's. It becomes clear, particularly to Blair, that this is just a matter of time before it's every one of us and we need to stop it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's what prompts McCready to go back to the Norwegian camp to look at it again. And that's when they find the hole in the ice where the apparently the thing crawled mm-hmm. out of the flying saucer and froze there. And they start putting all that together. And that begins really for me. What is, what is the movie? which is, OK, we're not facing an external force here. It is us. Hmm. And so, you know, from that point forward, they lock up Blair because he goes crazy and he smashes up the helicopter so they can't get out. He smashes up the radio and the computer so they can't communicate with the outside world.
1: And he already poured whiskey in the chess computer, <laughs> so they can't use that.
2: Exactly. Or Adrian Barbeau's <laughs> disembodied voice. <laughs> And so it's it's very clear that he's he's on a mission to probably kill everybody in the camp Mm. to try to stop the thing from getting out, which is a bit ironic given who Blair ends up being (laughs) at the end of this Mm -hmm. movie. But, you know, at that point in time, just a sort of a series of things just keeps happening to where it does become. And then there were none. Mm. But it all leads up to the reason Carpenter wanted to do the movie in the first place, which was the blood test scene, Hmm. which is very, you know, very iconic to those people who have watched the movie and, and liked it is this notion that it all boils down to this thing will fight even when the smallest part of it is attacked. And I think that that's one of the more amazing scenes in movies, um, is how it comes down to that moment. You know, then the person that you think is least likely to be the thing who is the stoner <laughs> ends up being the thing. I think it was after that that, you know, a couple of other people are assimilated or killed, or it's suggested that one of them maybe killed himself thinking that it was about to get him mm-hmm. or that it had become him. Mm. And then they all realize that the few people who are left surviving realize we're not getting out of this alive and and that's when McCready's famous speech where he says you know we're not getting out of this alive but neither is this thing mm-hmm. and so that's you know sort of the end of the movie really is them trying to make sure that the thing doesn't survive and that's why the ending of the movie is so bleak because you don't know whether the thing survived mm-hmm. by design you don't know
0: man I loved this ending so much yeah. maybe it's because we're entering the third year of a pandemic <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this is an ethos I can take forward. Well, and you know, as
2: Carpenter, Carpenter has pointed out and others have that this movie came out right as the AIDS epidemic was beginning to ravage the 80s. And there was a lot Mm. of talk of, you know, with the beginning, if you were around in that time, which I was, you know, there was just awful misinformation about it. You didn't know who had it, which is just like the thing. Mm. And so you can draw those parallels between that and certainly COVID, you know, which is Mm -hmm. what makes it even more relevant today than it's been at any other time in my life, is you do kind of wonder, you know, who does have this disease that we all know could have, particularly at Mm -hmm. the beginning of this pandemic, could definitely have killed you. Still can, obviously. Mm Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Can you talk about that blood test scene, Brad, and why it stands out to you and why it was so important to to Carpenter to center the movie on?
1: Why it's featured in Bravo's Scariest Movie Moments.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think what it was was first for for me, what I liked about it personally is that it's sort of McCready who puts it together. He's not the bio, you know, he's the pilot. He's not the biologist. He's not Mm -hmm. the pathologist. He's not a doctor. But he's been paying attention. And I think amongst all the people there, he's been the least freaking out. Maybe this is because he was a war veteran and had been in battles. But he puts it together that when he sees the head crawl away, Norris's head detached from its body, (laughs) sprout legs and crawl away. He obviously puts it together that each part of this thing is a whole and it'll fight to protect itself. If we're human. And we take blood from ourselves and we place a hot wire into that blood. Nothing will happen. But I bet if we take a thing's blood and put it in a little Petri dish and put a hot wire onto it, it'll react in some way. So you go into the scene. It's a very suspenseful scene, obviously, because you don't know what's going to happen. And you're wondering, just like the characters wonder, is this bullshit? I mean, this is just Max theory. About this, And you kind of get to a point where Mm -hmm. people who you think might be the thing or, you know, quote unquote, testing negative. And just when you're thinking this might be kind of a, you know, a bullshit test for that is when unexpectedly the Petri dish for Palmer reacts the way it does. And then he turns into the thing. And I think that's what, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what intrigued Carpenter the most about it was sort of bringing all of these men to this place where it's time for us to find out who's who. Which was the original title of the short story was Who Goes There?
1: Mm. I originally always heard that in the tone of, like, Who goes there? like about Antarctica, <laughs> but that's probably not, that's not what it's supposed to sound like. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't
2: know. I think that sounds just fine to me.
1: Who goes there? Who goes there?
0: It isn't until this conversation that I've really like thought about McCready as a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. That's implied based on sort of like what we know about him in the time, I assume.
1: Yeah, and I think there was originally going to be more backstory in the movie. Well,
0: I love there not being any because, like, I just right. like thinking about the fact, to your point, Sarah, that this is like. Half scientists and half civilians mm-hmm. making the way for the scientists. And I just love the idea that, like, outside of flying the helicopter in and out, McCready's just there playing chess and drinking and, like, probably just like thinking about Vietnam. Like, I imagine that's
1: like. What he's I mean, doing talk this about quarantine parallels. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. And just lo- and everyone's losing their shit. Yeah. You know, he-, he especially is given this opportunity to actually like shine in an interesting way. I I'm much more appreciative of that than I ever have been before.
1: I feel like this movie falls into a subgenre of horror and probably other categories as well. I mean, this is kind of the idea of the noir detective too, I feel like, which really flowered after World War II, which is like, if if you're traumatized and you can't handle civilian life, disasters and mysteries and murders will be your bread and butter. You'll do just fine with that. It's like the ideal apocalyptic situation for someone who can't hack it in the suburbs.
0: It's such a funny alternative to like what we're told usually happens to soldiers after is like to become a mercenary right Is like to like find some meaning behind becoming a mercenary and he becomes a mercenary inadvertently but really he just signs up to like (laughs) fly in scientists
1: right he's like give me the most boring job i can get honestly and they're like we're gonna give you an alien yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) i just want to play chess with the computer for six months
2: yeah and even his like if you look at the camp even where he stays is separate and a park. I mean, he has a shack that's like up the hill. Like he's not even with the rest of the crowd, presumably whose quarters are in the main base camp building.
0: Yeah. The noir detective, that's a great parallel. That's like exactly, that's exactly it. him or the stranger in a, you know, Western town.
2: I really do believe, and it's not just because I'm a big fan of it. I watch a lot of movies and I know what movies have been nominated for recognition throughout the years. And I I really think this movie is Academy award-winning stuff. I mean, I, like if you go back and look at this movie, this is not a genre movie in the sense of the way that word is used to dismiss movies. I mean, if the Silence of the Lambs won awards less than 10 years later for the performances in it, mm. I almost feel like this movie, you know, almost was ahead of its time in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yes it has creature effects and it's scary but at bottom this is almost like a it's like a stage play with pyrotechnics. Yeah.
0: That's what I mean about the 12 angry men piece if you take out the alien This is just about 12 men sorting out power dynamics, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and not just, I'm not saying just to make it reductive. It's like, it's very wonderfully played And to, to, I, to, I I can't remember who made the point. Like there are varying levels of people trying to suss out the power dynamic. It's extraordinarily well played. And if this was, you know, re-edited and presented at the time where an alien weren't part of the frustration, I feel like this probably would have been considered,
1: right? I'm just thinking about, and then if the guy who made Jacob's Ladder made it, then we could have a twist at the end where McCready is still in Vietnam and none of this ever happened. And then I was like, why did people like Jacob's Ladder so much? That movie actually did pretty well.
2: (laughs) 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 They did shoot an alternative ending that made it clear that McCready made it out and that he was human. And Carpenter said, it's not, that's not going to happen this movie was always about this ending. I think another kind of alternate suggestion was whether to even see Childs again, Mm -hmm. you know, McCready kind of falling down in the ice and, you know, it ending with just him lying there, obviously about to freeze to death. But, you know, this movie was, is for adults too. You can't really put this in the same category as, even as Halloween or The Nightmare on Elm Street franchise or the Friday the 13th franchise, all of which, as you all know, I'm super fans of. This is a grown up movie about grown ups dealing with a situation and with each other. And it ends in a very grown up way, which is not with a jump scare Mm -hmm. or a cheap trick or Mm -hmm. a positive, happy resolution. It ends very bleakly. You know, one thing we haven't talked about yet is Ennio Morricone's score, mm. which perfectly captured. I mean, I think one of the names of one of the tracks on it is Desolation. Mm. I don't know that I've ever heard a score to a movie that's so perfectly complemented like the mood of it and the psychology of it than mm. that, which is why I listen to it quite often.
1: And also that it's really sparingly used. Mm-hmm. I was watching the blood test scene and I was like, there's no music in this. It's just happening. Right? They're just like, yeah, this is scary. We don't have to put scary music on it to show you that it's scary. And that's
2: another thing that I think is similar to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is there were there were prolonged scenes of great horror occurring. And all you hear are people screaming about it, <laughs> like in the blood test scene yeah. where, where Palmer turns into the thing. It's just a bunch of men screaming.
1: And it's just scary enough. I think in both these scenes we get where there's a little bit of a misdirection, which helps the scare. It's not quite a jump scare, but like it comes kind of from the left in a way where so for in the blood test scene, he's going through and testing each of the dishes and nothing's happening. And you're like, okay, is this even going to do anything? And then Gary's arguing with McCready and he's like, This is pure nonsense. It doesn't prove a thing because he's Scottish sometimes. <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> <laughs> McCready's like, I thought you would say that, Gary. You're the only one who could have gotten to that blood. We'll do you last. And then he like goes to test Palmer's blood, and you're like, Okay, well he's gonna do Gary's blood next, and that'll be interesting. Cause Gary's being fighty. And like, who gives a shit about Palmer? And then Palmer's blood leaps out of the tray and like screams. And you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) It does work. The uh, Norris thing incident, which is amazing. We have this whole thing where they've been out in blizzard conditions. And is this when they cut McCready loose and leave him out in the blizzard because they suspect him of being the thing? McCready has a rough time.
2: Yeah, it's after they burn all of the remains and they're outside and he says, I need to go, you know, I'm going out to my shack to look at some, you know, something. Um, cause I didn't leave the lights on mm-hmm. last time. And I think is, I think that's when he, when Nals says, I found torn underwear right? and I ran back and cut him loose because he thinks he's the thing.
1: And that's terrifying. And so Kurt Russell staggers in and he's like in a, a Russell sickle. <laughs> <laughs> and He's arguing with everybody and there's a struggle for power going on. And then the middle of this Norris is like appears to have a heart attack. And you're like, okay, well, that's stressful, too. But like it's not the main thing. Dr. Copper is doing CPR on him. And then his chest just opens up and sprouts teeth and then chomps off the doctor's hands. It's incredible. Like, I love it every time it happens. It's insane. Yeah.
0: I love the part when the head has sprouted the like spider legs, basically the four yes. spider legs.
1: It like walks
0: over to the door and is just looking up.
1: Yes. <laughs> like, like an Alaskan king crab. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It doesn't have a
1: plan or do anything. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, whoa. <laughs> and they're like, all right, well let's burn it. <laughs> but it creates some questions about the thing, right? That's
2: when he says, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I love that. It's <laughs> a great line.
1: <laughs> yeah. So like, The thing assimilates Norris. Norris has a heart attack. I assume the thing is kind of made a perfect copy of Norris, including heart disease, Mm. (laughs) and didn't anticipate that happening. And then it's like, oh, man, now I got to do something about this. CRISPR
0: didn't exist yet. It didn't know to skip over that yet.
1: Right. And so after chomping off the doctor's hands, it's like the head starts separating from the body and then it sprouts legs and just like scuttles away. And... (laughs) It's so weird. Yeah. And I I think it gets little and like antenna eyeballs too. Right. It's just like, I mean, it's kind of cute to be honest.
2: If we're being honest, that disembodied head was very cute.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When windows is drawing the blood from everybody, he cuts punky Brewster's teachers thumb first. (laughs) And then he just wipes the scalpel on his pants. Yeah. And there's definitely still blood on that scalpel. And he cuts his own finger. (laughs) That'll be fine. Like we're talking about infected blood. This is what happens
1: when you have to have the radio operator do the blood draw because the doctor is dead and the other doctor is eating beans locked up in a shack because he's trying to kill everyone.
0: The doctor got chomped by a torso.
1: He did. Yeah. Brad, why is
0: this your favorite? How'd you fall in love with it? What did it speak to? Tell us about your relationship with the movie.
2: Well, I, first of all, I'm John Carpenter's my favorite movie maker. Period, and his movies with Kurt Russell are probably my favorite among them all. And then there's this one, and I think that what I think drew me into this movie when I was a kid is that it really did introduce me to this concept of understanding that your days are numbered, that you're not going to make it out of a situation alive. Because, you know, up to that point, and I think through most of our lives, really, the, our driving force is survival. Mm-hmm. I'm persevering here because I want to live. Um, and that's my motivation, is wanting to get out of this situation alive and hopefully without going through too much pain in the meantime. Here, there's a very clear moment in this movie where Kurt Russell particularly realizes and says to the rest of the living survivors, we're not going to make it out of here. But mm-hmm. we have a job to do and the ability to sort of not only recognize my life is effectively over, but then to continue to function, you know, at a pretty high level. And on top of that, to be motivated by literally saving the world, mm-hmm. those concepts were, you know, apart from the scares and the creature effects and the fact that I love scary movies in general. I think this was probably the first grown up scary movie that I saw mm-hmm. that had grown up themes to it. And that had grown up, you know, it wasn't teenagers running around. It was grown up people dealing with a horrible situation. And, you know, I think it spoke to me as a kid. And now, you know, when I go back and watch it again, which I do very frequently, it's still intriguing to me those moments when, you know, you realize this is it for me, Mm -hmm. but I can't lay down and die. I've got work to do. That's why I love it.
0: I think it's just from being on the internet all the time, but like, I'm so, I'm really reluctant when people define a person's behavior, a tendency or something that they do. And like, someone will be like, this person is like a gas lighter or whatever, something like that. And then mm-hmm. say, have that be the definition. I've been trying to figure out like why that's a thing that means something to me in one way or another, like why I'm adverse to it. And I think it's because as I get older, I realize that most people's behavior is them surviving at you. Mm -hmm. they've just learned how to survive imperfectly. We've all learned how to survive imperfectly in one way or another. And we just broadcast those skills at each other and they just bounce off of each other and occasionally we'll, have our shit together enough to like be conscious in the middle of that and then think that mm-hmm. there was more agency than there actually was and so i think it's really important to actually like identify the behaviors that are worrying because then you learn how to like interface with the behaviors not necessarily the, the person right that is the terror of this movie you have people who are you know not just doing that in a passive way like we do every day sort of like pitting our survival skills up against each other but like it's really on the line and you see how messy that gets quick and it's like a really nice analogy just for living with people normally Mm. that
2: reminds me one thing we haven't talked about yet is in terms of the interpersonal is that mac kills clark who is not the thing
1: yeah he sure does you know
2: clark is obviously suspicious because this is after you know mac's been cut loose and he comes back in and he's Trying to get the test together and he lunges at Mac and Mac shoots him in the head and then they give him the blood test a little bit Mm -hmm. later and realize he was still human and child says, and that makes you a murderer.
0: Yeah. By the way, no it doesn't. He <laughs> came at him with a scalpel at his head. Yeah. I understand we've gotten a little a little liberal about when you can shoot someone in this country. But like,
1: no. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> no. That is one of the times. I don't
2: usually guarantee results in my day job, but I feel quite comfortable that I would have been able to successfully represent Mac on a self-defense.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> That's such an interesting way to frame it though, Brad, where you say that this is like an an adult movie is like, mm-hmm. I have never thought of it that way. And that's so well put. It's an explanation on film about why your parents are like they are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's really just a constant metaphor for, you know, xenophobia, inability to be okay with each other, our fear of each other because we're other, our fear that even though we might look like each other, if we... Do a certain thing or behave a certain way or love a certain person. We're other and we're bad and we're going to destroy the world. You know, in this movie, I think just sort of, you know, really brought that down and distilled it to its to its essence and put a bunch of people in a really stressful situation where they did not know who was who. And I think that's when you reveal yourself. You know, we often play this game where how, how would we behave if, you know, like if we were in any given horror movie or any given scenario, how do we think we would handle that situation? Mm. You know, what this movie gave us is a number of different ways that people would handle that situation.
1: Mm -hmm. You know,
2: I think in the end, we did not have a kumbaya around the campfire moment. We had only two people left and they clearly didn't know what, whether the other was a threat (laughs) But they were so tired of, of fighting that they just sat down and kind of looked at each other. And that was the end of the movie.
0: It's kind of how you feel like COVID's going to play out. It's like, well, at this rate, there's no end, the mm-hmm. only thing is exhaustion.
1: And only Kurt Russell and Keith David will be left alive.
0: Totally. I mean, that's what it feels like. It's not going to be like the smart necessarily that survive, although this is the smart that survive in this case. It's just like who will be able to survive long enough to just like feel exhausted and fucking absolutely put upon by the end. Mm -hmm. Well,
2: yeah. And you see the, the you see the fights that they have throughout the movie are fights that have happened throughout COVID, which is should we do this test Mm -hmm. will this test tell us who has it you know something as simple as Fuchs saying i think we all we all need to prepare our own meals Mm -hmm. and we need to eat out of cans and i'm just you know is there like sort of a MAGA person saying no i i want us to all eat together because of freedom
1: let's go to applebee's i don't care if there's a thing the thing wins if we don't go to applebee's
2: (laughs) we can't let the thing win and the thing wins if we're preparing our own meals and eating out of cans
1: Yeah, I got to say, I love Fuchs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fuchs was the person I was saying German or French. That's who I was referring to.
1: Oh, that's who you think is Jacques. Oh, that makes sense. Because his name is Fuchs. Okay. (laughs) I love Fuchs, right? Because he has a pure soul and he goes down studying and he's got a nice sweater. He's very handsome. And I think that he and MacReady kind of have that in common where they're like, things are fucked. So I'm going to like focus and try and think, you know, this eating thing. That's helpful. It's not solving the entire problem. But like in a disaster situation, you need people who are like, I'm thinking about infrastructure.
2: Yeah, no. And he is he's real concerned about locking Blair away because he's like, we need his brain. We need him to help us. We need everybody and all brains on on deck here. You know, in the end, the survivors, you know, who are alive to try to get through the end of this and kill the thing, do it, it For each other, like do it together. They work together. They Mm. work for humanity. Um, And that sort of contrasts with the thing, which is its own thing. Even if it's just a blood sample, they come full circle because the ones who are, you know, who have had the test and who know that at least at this moment, they're all human you know, their first thing that they do when they stop fighting each other about who's who and what's what, and they realize they're all human, is they basically make a suicide pact to try to kill the the thing before it can reach civilization. Mm
0: -hmm. And I would love to know more, Brad, about your take on like what John Carpenter's outlook is, because I know that he was like pretty clearly anti-Reagan. But like the way that like Ivan Reitman in retrospect is like obviously just a naysaying libertarian in a way where it felt like probably like refreshing in the early 80s where they're like, they hate authority. That's interesting. Like, that's just inherently interesting that they hate authority. But like, Mm -hmm. in the long run, he was just a fucking libertarian. What I love about Carpenter is like, he's not anti-authoritarian. He just seems to believe in collaboration in people a lot more than the people in charge seem to believe Mm. in that at the time. He's salty as hell. Like, he seems cynical in a lot of ways, but like, he really does seem to believe in like, people's ability to see clearly and like come together and actually act on our own best interest in one way or another.
2: So I think it's probably fair to say that he is anti-authoritarian in the sense of who are nominally the authorities. Mm-hmm. The escape from New York is probably the best example of this. He puts a fascist police force on the wall of New York City Mm -hmm. makes the president out to be who he made the president out to be and made his hero out to be literally the the essence of anti-authoritarianism. And Mm -hmm. in the sense that he just is a nihilist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that when you look at some of the themes that run through Carpenter's movies, this is one of three movies that he calls his apocalypse trilogy. I mean, there are two others. It's this one, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. And Prince of Darkness, you have a very similar setup. You know, there's a small group of people trapped in a confined space confronting Mm -hmm. an ultimate evil that can easily infect each other. Mm -hmm. And if it infects everybody, takes over the world. Ultimately, what he shows is those people band together. I think what that reveals about him is that, yeah, he may have some cynicism. And yeah, in the in the near term, he might have some questions about people and whether they can work together. But in the long term, he seems to have a pretty good view of humanity.
0: I get that sense, too. Like, I think that there's a difference between being like inherently blanket anti-authoritarian anytime there's a consolidated power it's inherently bad and being uh, sorry i I meant the differences between like anti-authority and anti-authoritarian carpenter's Mm. difference seems to be like it appears to be every time there are people in power at least while i'm making movies they're real fucking dicks (laughs) and it seems like maybe we could consolidate the interests in a different way The, the outcome might be different
1: it's also interesting how sometimes the authorities are just like, they're not malicious so much as absent. Yes. So I'm thinking of like the U S government here and the police and Halloween who are just like, hi girls, have fun smoking a doobie. I won't be able to save you from the killer.
2: This movie was his yeah. first movie. And maybe his last movie that was a studio movie where he actually did hmm. have hmm. authorities over him. I mean, he had a lot more money and he had a lot more time. But he had uh, a studio that was, I think, a little bit more involved in his creative process than he was used to in in the movies that he had worked on before. And, you know, very famously, if you know anything about this movie, it did not do well when it came Mm -hmm. out with critics or really at the box office. And it Carpenter was set to to really kind of go on at that point to be, you know, a big studio director. And that really. You know, threw a monkey into that wrench for him. And which is amazing because now, 40 years later, people are still very much talking about this movie and how right. good it was.
1: Yeah. I think it ages perfectly because the thing about practical effects is that, like, they look the same mm-hmm. now as then. Like, if you get, you know, something from the late 90s looks incredibly dated because you get that, like, really smooth CGI. Yeah. And this looks perfect. It's funny too to think of this as a time when he was struggling in that way, because I think of this as being an absolutely charmed period for him where he made Halloween, the fog, escape from New York, and the thing in about five years, because just ridiculous. Amazing, Ron.
0: Brad, you you did a little
1: research into
0: the uh, to the author of the original story and he sucks.
1: First of all, let's, let,
2: let's go ahead and define what research is. I went on his Wikipedia page. <laughs> I liked the short story. I didn't really know much about John W. Campbell. So I went and looked him up and, you know, he was very famous at the time, science fiction author and editor. And then kind of scrolling down through his, it said he had a falling out. I think he was friends with Isaac Asimov maybe, but he had a falling out hmm. with him over his endorsement of pseudoscience. Hmm. And then so when you scroll further down, you see, you know, attributed to him that he's a slavery apologist, that he supported segregation or extolled its virtues in some ways, that he was, of course, was behind sort of the early developments with L. Ron Hubbard of Dianetics.
1: He got around, I guess
2: (laughs) all three of those things equally horrible, you know, and kind of strange in light of I mean, in the short story, there are some really good, you know, thoughtful monologues from characters about how, Hmm. you know, we need to be careful about what we're doing and the sort of presumptions we're making. And so it sort of surprised me to see that about him, but I'm not going to stop watching John Carpenter's The Thing as a result of it.
1: I mean, it's it's a few degrees of separation removed at that point. It's also that is making me remember that in the beginning of Campbell's story, it's like McCready was a god among men. He was six foot four and had glistening <laughs> copper hair, and he seemed to be made of copper. And it's like, all right, Ubermank City, let's calm down. He was bronze. <laughs> yes. Oh, bronze. Excuse me. Oh my goodness. See, what, my my memory, dude. <laughs> I mean, I, something I find interesting in light of Campbell's views is that like, we have this kind of, I see it as kind of squabbling for the top dog position between Childs and McCready for a lot of this movie, Childs being played by Keith David. And the ending scene is like, they're finally just kind of too exhausted to fight anymore. And it's kind of mutually assured destruction, but we are, Carpenter has told us that one of them is the thing. And Based on all the YouTube explainer videos I watched, I feel like it's got to be Childs because McCready's just like, his mouth is just like a fount of steam and Childs is not so much. And I do find it interesting that like, there is this kind of, Watching a movie in America, it's impossible to see a white guy and a black guy gunning to being charged as being totally outside of race as a concept. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird how, like, Childs ends up actually being the thing at the very end. And it's like, you should suspect that black guy at work. It's a little weird. Mm.
2: For what it's worth, he doesn't think he's the thing.
1: Hmm. Keith
2: David doesn't think that he was the thing at the end of the movie. And I
1: oh, think because he said that in, okay. in, I think,
2: a fairly recent interview which reminds me of in in a great deal of the sort of commentary tracks or behind the scenes documentaries, they all talked about how, Mm. who was the thing? Would you know if you were the thing? (laughs) How would you know if you were the thing? And if you did, what would you do? Would you, would you instantly become the thing or would you know you were becoming the thing? Like Fuchs may have known he was becoming the thing and then, you know, burned himself. To stop that from fully happening.
0: Yeah, Palmer doesn't know he's the thing until he's threatened. Right. Like once his blood is burned, he then starts to turn. So like who knows? Yeah. Like at this point, like McCready, I mean, is physically threatened, but is also not physically threatened, and maybe it just goes as long as as long as that runs.
2: Right. But your point's well taken, Sarah, which is, you know, the end. Because ordinarily, you know, I think one thing that has, you know, that John Carpenter is well lauded for and deservedly so is in a great deal of his movies, he's his cast members are not just all white people Mm -hmm. and his plots are not just all white centric. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a famous trope that black people very rarely make it to the end of a (laughs) horror movie. I think Knowles made it almost all the way to the end. (laughs) Then Childs was was there at the end with him. But it is interesting to think what message, if any, was being sent if Carpenter meant for Childs to be the thing in the end. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm. This really surprised me when I watch it. And it's always a thing I think of practically first with Prince of Darkness that I think like half of the characters are Asian American, which like just never happens in American horror movies. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. Well, in Big Trouble in Little China, obviously, (laughs) there's a showcase for Asian American actors. And I feel pretty certain that Carpenter wasn't meaning to say anything about race at the end of the thing. But as you say, it's hard to look at something, you know, in this country, even something like the thing and not at some level see that and see its potential.
1: Yeah. There's questions in there about like who gets authority when they sort of ask to receive it, which is relevant in apocalyptic situations.
2: Right. It, it, you know, I think that's what the the main it's not an exclamation point. It's like um, the T.S. Eliot quote. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And that's kind of how this movie ends. Mm-hmm. Even though there's a big bang and the camp explodes, the true ending of this movie is two human beings. Well, at least one human being <laughs> sitting across from each other and wondering what now?
1: They got a nice fire going. They should bring the brats out. Yeah, they should. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm watching Yellow Jackets, which has some root in the Uruguayan rugby team that went down by plane, And then sort of famously, they had to no, resort is the weirdest word, but they had to They had
1: survive to, on each other's flesh.
0: Yeah, they to eat each other. And I just watched a video about that last night. And it's the first time mm-hmm. I visited that since like that movie Alive came out like years and years ago. It's such a fascinating piece. Like the thing I didn't realize about the social dynamic is they had assigned people whose primary responsibility in this gave them governing power, like they Mm. had governing power by allocating the food, but they also had the luxury of not knowing who they were eating. Mm. So there were like people who were assigned specifically for doling out food, which again gave them power for governance, but it also gave everyone else the innocence of not knowing what they were eating.
1: Yeah. God, imagine having the wherewithal to be in a survival situation and to invent a parliamentary government, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. What is most fascinating about that, kind of how naturally these processes evolve. Hmm. Often when we tell these stories of survival in one way or another, it is it is about sort of like existential terror and like all of the bad human drama. But like, there are actually like a lot of stories about survival that do not end in a lord of the, F- I mean, they end in eating people, but they don't have- <laughs> in a a lord of the flies like situation
1: but not in a bad way i mean didn't you send me that a story wasn't there a news story like this spring about a group of teenage boys
0: from i think they were from new zealand and i think they were maori boys they got lost on like a school trip or like they stole a boat or something something happened and they got lost for 18 months And it was very much not a Lord of the Flies situation. It was a like, let's collaborate and learn how to keep living situation. And it happened around the time that Lord of the Flies was a very popular book, which suggests that like, yes, white men will end up eating each other on an island. However, other people will find ways to collaborate and not become nihilistic pricks. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> right they were six tongan boys and i believe they had some kind of a paddleball court everyone had a job yes they set up a small town essentially and they were just handling it where were they originally from um let me read to you from people magazine thanks okay six boys in june 1965 who were all at St. Andrew's Anglican Boarding School on Tonga, borrowed a boat thinking they could sail to New Zealand for, quote, a better life, but a storm their first night at sea derailed their pipe dream. So the boat got damaged, they survived eight days at sea, and then they ended up on a deserted island on the South Pacific. And they just figured it out.
0: Yeah, more stories than you think. Where these things have, have been tried out, end up leading to some form of civilization and not just like, I need to murder you to get control.
1: Right, because that's a short term plan. It's like burning <laughs> the camp for the fire, but that's only going to give you heat for about seven hours. Yeah, Well put. Right.
0: <laughs> so we normally ask the like we know who the dad is who's the daddy. So first of all, there is no dad outside of if we want to talk about
1: adrian Barbo. if we want to talk about adrian <laughs>
0: barbeau obviously we do i feel like just macready is the read throughout although i have an argument for trials but what is a similarly appropriate wrapping question do you think sarah sorry to put you on the spot
1: oh wow we know who the thing is but who does that thing they do <laughs> we like it <laughs> It's hard to do a pun with the word thing, you know?
0: He's the VIP.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess like, I feel like there are so many little things to love about this movie. So I would love to close with each of us saying like a couple of little things or a couple of moments that they enjoy. I love it when Palmer says chariots of the gods, man, about (laughs) flying saucers. That always makes me happy. And he reminds me of Miller from Repo Man in that moment.
0: (laughs) He has suggested that all of South America has been built by aliens.
1: Yes, which a lot of people believe who who read that book, I guess. It was a very influential (laughs) crackpot type book.
0: Brad, what's the thing you liked? I
2: forget who it was that suggested while they were all standing around outside. You know, we'll just have to wait. Until the spring when the rescue team arrives and McCready says, no, we're not going to wait. One of us in this camp ain't what he appears to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the entire theme of the movie. One, one of us in this camp ain't what he appears to be. And I think that that's, you know, we find that in our lives, too, whether it's in offices and rooms with people and classrooms online, for sure. One of us <laughs> in this camp ain't what he appears to be.
1: All the secret Nazis that live in the country, apparently.
2: (laughs) Yes, secret Nazis, right. Each one of these 12 men can just represent different viewpoints around the country. How are we going to figure this out? Are we the threat? Is the threat external or is the threat internal? I think what's brilliant about the thing is it is both. It's what we do, you know, with facing the threat that is as much of a danger to ourselves as the threat itself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I like what this movie does with regard to like the supernatural element is the second scariest thing involved next to the human dynamics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen Titanic since I was 17. I saw it in the theater and like maybe it's the difference is just seeing it now as an adult. But the horror of that mover, movie is not an iceberg. It's it's a lot of human error.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: There's mm-hmm. a pretty tight parallel here where it's like. An alien is the second scariest thing that these men have to deal with.
1: Right. Oh
0: my God. (laughs) Each other is the first. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Bradley Bannon, our lovely friend and guest in this episode, for coming and talking about John Carpenter's The Thing. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Just a quick reminder you can get a collection of songs that Carolyn put together for a number of early episodes of You Are Good. It's called The Music of You Are Good, Volume One. You can download that on Bandcamp, which is very helpful. It's a nice way to support artists, or you can stream it and you can listen to Carolyn's music you can also find carolyn's other music at Carolynkendrick.com. thank you so much to fresh Lesh for producing the beats to the show thank you for listening next week we're going to talk about to die for with our great friend laura Lippman, and it's a super fun chat thank you all for being here uh you can find us on twitter you can find us on instagram at you are good pod you can find us at patreon you can get bonus episodes by doing that and songs and all that sort of thing we appreciate you thanks so much for being here you are good